TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Adam Grant. I think about work a lot. That's why I wanted to tell you about Canva Docs, which will help you expertly craft your work communications. They have an AI text generator built in called MagicWrite, powered by OpenAI. You can generate any text you want. Job descriptions, marketing plans, sales proposals. Just start with a prompt and you'll have a draft in seconds. Tweak your draft and you're done. Try Canva Docs with an AI text generator built in at canva.com. Designed for work. Got a business problem? There's a TED Talk for that. Stay updated on everything business on TED Business, a podcast hosted by Columbia Business School professor Modupe Akinola. Every week, she'll introduce you to leaders with unique insights on work, answering questions like, how do four-day work weeks work? To, will a machine ever take my job? Get some surprising answers on TED Business wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. It's Adam. I'm excited to share something different today. It's an episode from another TED Audio Collective podcast, The TED Interview, hosted by the great Stephen Johnson. If you do not know Stephen Johnson's work, you are doing yourself a disservice. Uh, he's probably best known for the brilliant video he did on where good ideas come from. He is a remarkably gifted science writer. He has made me rethink whether we should be sending signals out into outer space uh, and whether we should all be galactic introverts instead of extroverts. Uh, he's talked at length about the importance of the groundbreaking work we've done in the last century to literally give humanity an extra life uh, and written a, an outstanding book and also delivered one of my favorite TED Talks on that very topic, on the longevity project and, and how we got to where we are and how we could live for another hundred years. So I, I could wax poetic for ages about how much I admire Stephen's work, but I, I thought we could try something different and just say, Stephen, are you with us? I, oh, I am. Wow. Uh, I'm here. Thank you for conjuring me up. Uh, and thank you for all those kind words. That's very nice. Yeah, I'm really excited. I've, I've taken over the the TED Interview podcast. So I've joined the TED Audio Collective, trying to emulate the great work you've been doing here for the last couple of years. Um, and in this episode you, you're about to listen to now, we talked to Michael Schur, who is just an incredibly funny and interesting and engaging guy. Um, he's the co-creator of Legendary shows like The Office um, and the creator of Parks and Rec and uh, The Good Place. And he's also written a book uh, that just came out relatively recently with the great title of How to Be Perfect, <laughs> which is basically an exploration of moral philosophy, which is, if you've ever seen The Good Place, his most recent show, you know, um, that's a central kind of theme of that. And it, I, we thought it was interesting thinking about you know, the, the issues that you've explored in your own career about kind of work culture, because really sure is is the great creator of television office comedies. Um, and so in this episode, we talk about the importance of going to an office um, and also about some of the ethical challenges that come from, you know, sharing uh, a physical space with people with some kind of core shared mission. Um, it's a really fun conversation. If you're a TV nerd, there's some really interesting things about narrative and writing in there. And there's a lot about uh, how to be a better colleague. Um, I think you'll really enjoy it. I, I can't wait for this. I'm obviously a super fan of The Office. I love The Good Place. And my favorite thing from behind the scenes there is that they had a no asshole culture. And I, I even heard from a, a few of the people on set that they found Michael Schur annoyingly moral. 
Like he was too good. And I, I'm like, I, I don't think there's such a thing. I want to be around good people. So I think this is, this is going to be a great conversation. And let me just say, if you like what you hear, which you will, you can find and follow the TED interview wherever you're listening. Enjoy. Michael Shore, welcome to the TED interview. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. We are thrilled to have you on the show for, for a number of different reasons, for like a dozen different reasons. First, just your voice is, I think, wonderful for podcasts. You know, just the, the shows. You've written a wonderful new book, and there's so much to talk about. But one of the things that was really lovely about the timing of this is that this is part of a series that we're doing on workplaces and and the future of work. We've, we've been through this radical reinvention of what work looks like over the last two years. And obviously you have co-written or co-created two of the defining kind of popular narratives about what work looks like in, in the office and Parks and Rec. And so we wanted to kind of start by talking about that. And in thinking it over the other day, I was thinking that, you know, there's a really interesting long history with the sitcom in particular of workplace narratives, I think probably more than any other form. Like I was straining to think of great, you know, workplace novels or great, you know, <laughs> workplace films. And they're just, I mean, there aren't that many of them, I, I think. But yeah. if you think back over the history of TV, I mean, you go back to Mary Tyler Moore, obviously, even parts of Dick Van Dyke show were like some of the great scenes yeah. of that were in the office and Murphy Brown, Cheers in a way was kind of for the main 100%. characters. It was a, it was yeah. a workplace comedy. And so I guess my first question is, what is it about that setting that that makes both, you know, rich storytelling possibilities and character arcs, but also comedy possible? What drew you to that kind of environment? Well, I mean, generally speaking, you divide your day into three parts, work, family and sleep. Can't write a show about what happens when you're asleep. Um, <laughs> so you have family and workplace as your options. And, you know, family shows are wonderful, but there are limitations to who can be in a family show. And some, and in the past that hasn't been a problem really. We're just all in the family. Here's the family. Mm -hmm. Here's the, this is a portrait of a, a specific moment at a specific time in American history. And these are the types of people and the generational divides and stuff like that. But workplaces, anyone, you can, you have the, the world's your oyster. You can put anyone you want in a workplace. And the shows that I've created or worked on, starting with The Office, Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, that are set in workplaces, part of the pitch is when Dan Gore and I were pitching Brooklyn Nine-Nine, one of the things we said was literally anyone can be a New York City police officer. <laughs> anyone. Right. Like the, at any age, any gender, any ethnicity, like you get you get to broaden the scope of who can be in the room. So that has always been part of the attraction to me. And then the other part of it is that you don't really, I mean, you don't get to choose your family, but you sure don't get to choose who you work with. And so, you know, the office as the sort of er example of this, mm. the part of the genius was the, of the office, the British office, which then Greg Daniels adapted into the American office is this, there's a line in the British office where, Tim, the character Tim is say, says, um, you, you know, you spend eight hours a day with people and the only thing you have in common with them is, is that you share this little bit of carpet. So when you form a friendship or in his case, fall in love with someone in coincidentally, because you work with them, 
that is such a marvelous and wonderful and an interesting thing that this, these two people from two different places happen to be thrown together on the same piece of carpet and they develop this relationship. There's something kind of magical about that. Like you, even though you don't get to choose your family, it's still, you pre love them, you yeah. know, like you, you have a relationship with them that is defined by the situation and it feels more magical and interesting. I think at least romantically when it happens at work, because you think like, God, how, how lucky is this that I happen to have been thrown onto this bit of carpet with this other person? Yeah. That's really interesting. One of the things that your work has been, this has been much remarked about, about your work and the, and the arc from the British office um, to the American office and then to Parks and Rec is a, a transition of um, kind of earnestness. <laughs> or, um, and, you know, one of the things that struck me looking back over your career is, is you're a little bit younger than I am, but we, we grew up in the nineties where the, the kind of the dominant success story of comedy was Seinfeld mm -hmm. and, and as part of that a little bit later, the UK office, both of which are very dark shows. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Seinfeld famously had that slogan of no hugging, no learning. Mm -hmm. Um, and all the characters are, are fundamentally flawed, like mm -hmm. fatally flawed. And, and there are no real redemption arcs, no. certainly in, in, in Seinfeld. And you know, it actually kind of occurred to me watching the, the good place, which we'll get to is that all the backstory scenes with Kristen Bell's character feel like she's a Seinfeld character. Yeah. Like she could be kind of a slightly more misanthropic Elaine in a, <laughs> in a funny way. Um, sure. And so you kind of jump into this world where actually doing good in the world and, and having a, you know, a moral integrity is, is suddenly important in a way that it never was in Seinfeld. And The Office, other people have said this, The Office is kind of the transition point in a way, the American office, um, particularly in Steve Carell's character and, and Michael Scott, that he... He seems to kind of evolve a little bit. You know, he starts off and he's kind of a unlikable but comic figure. And he's, he becomes, uh, you know, more of a sweetheart over, over time. And you kind of end up rooting for him despite mm -hmm. all his flaws. And very different from the Ricky Gervais vision of things in the UK office. So I guess the question is, how conscious were you guys of that at the time? Was that a deliberate strategy or did it just kind of evolve over time? No, it's all we talked about. Right. Um, the, the David Brent, Ricky Gervais's character. Um, and remember they only did 12 episodes right. and then a Christmas special. So we're talking about a very condensed, yeah. it's almost a movie, right. you know, it's much closer to a movie than it, than it is a, an ongoing series. But the Brits have a much higher tolerance for that sort of humor than Americans do the Brits will give you 99.75% offbeat, downtrodden, cynical, unpleasant, <laughs> like, like uh, dark humor. And then in the last, and it's quite literally in the last, I don't know, 30 seconds of the hour long Christmas special, <laughs> he tells his friend, his awful friend Finch to F off. And because Finch and Neil, the other guy that he's talking to, are making fun of the woman that he that he brought to the Christmas party. And it's like the for the first time in the entire 12 episodes and Christmas special, you think like, oh, you know what? He's standing up 
to the awful people and he has a soul and he's, he's going to be okay. Like, it, but they literally wait until the last 30 seconds right. of the character. Right. They've put you through the ringer and they, and they are, they can do that because again, the audience has a much higher tolerance for that sort of like every episode ends in this terrible downbeat. Hmm. The American office adapted the same worldview for the first season. We did six episodes and for the first season, those episodes all ended, or at least I think all, uh, most of them ended on one of those really like unpleasant notes. Like it left the, the last thing that the audience experienced was something like sad and troubling, you know? <laughs> and uh, it turned out that no one liked that in America, mm. that they, w I think we now, you know, that was 20 years ago. I think that audiences now have a higher tolerance here for that sort of thing. But at the time it was like, are you kidding me? Why am I watching the show? This is so depressing. And between seasons one and two, the 40 year old version came out and we all went to see it and we came back for season two. We had almost gotten canceled. And Greg Daniels basically said, we have two choices. We can take some of the, the winning, charming sweetness and mm -hmm. optimism that Steve Carell is capable of as a performer and stir it into the character or we can get canceled. Those, that's what, those are our <laughs> two options. And he's like, we're going to take, we're not going to fundamentally change the show. The show is still going to be a satirical look at workplaces and it's going to have that, that kind of downbeat humor in it. But we're going to end every episode with a little ski jump, a little uptick of optimism and hope. The, I remember taking a walk around the crummy lot where we were working at the time and all the writers thought he was making a huge mistake. Wow. We were all like, this is insane. He's blowing it. He doesn't understand. Comedy writers love nothing more than like cynicism <laughs> and, and downbeat endings because it's like, God, does everything have to be a joke? And, and we thought it was cool that we were doing this show that had this different approach to humor. And we all, I remember the conversation very clearly. We all thought he was making a huge mistake. Of course he wasn't, he was exactly right. Yeah. And with his vision, we managed to maintain the integrity of the sense of humor of the show, but just stirred in a little bit more optimism and happiness and upbeat endings. And it's the difference between a show that would last 12 episodes and then get canceled or last 200 and be thought of as one of the great American yeah. sitcoms of all time. The episode that I remember as a, as a viewer, and I think this comes later, I can't remember what season it's in, but it really hit, hit home to me is the episode called The Local Ad. Yes. Where, where great example. you know, uh, he, there's this in kind of internal battle to make an ad for Dunder Mifflin mm -hmm. and... Michael Scott wants to make because he's got a vision, but you're not totally sure what his vision is. Mm -hmm. And you kind of assume his vision is going to be terrible or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, amateurish or whatever. And they end up, the, you know, the corporate powers to be end up making their own ad basically. And it's awful. And at the end you see in a bar, they show the ad that, that Michael had made and it's kind of wonderful. You yeah, know, it's actually it's, very sweet. It's actually very creative. It doesn't, it, like if you listen to the voiceover, it's nonsense, right? Yeah. It's just corporate babble, but it's got an inherent sweetness to it and a kind of like DIY feel to it that's really charming and sweet. And yeah, like the, the story begins with him thinking that he, it's like he, my, the key to unlocking Michael Scott was always, he wants to be Steve Jobs, right? He thinks of himself as Steve Jobs. <laughs> he thinks of himself as this, this visionary, this innovative business leader who's, who's really like 
got his finger on the pulse of like what makes a corporation great. And meanwhile, he's running a branch of a crummy paper company in the middle of nowhere, right? And so that's how he thought of himself. And then the the fun of it was the people, the ad guys show up and they're like, we've shot the ad already. We, this is a three second shot of your staff waving to the camera. Like this is, that's all we need from you. And he's like, he won't, re, he won't accept that. He's like, we have to nail this. We have to get it right. And in the old, in the season one version, what would have happened is he would have made that ad and it would have been humiliating and embarrassing for him. Like it would have, everyone would yeah, have like rolled exactly. their eyes and averted their eyes. And in the new version, the version that Greg designed between seasons one and two, it's like he, of course he gets embarrassed and he's ridiculed and the ad guys think he's ridiculous. And like he ends up, they end up just waving, but we get to see his ad. And like you say, his ad is sweet and charming and cute. And he's so proud of it because he it's like it is the vision that he had and he he doesn't care that it looks really crummy and that it, the gr video is grainy and the yeah. voiceover is nonsensical like it's an act of love for him and the people that he works yeah, with. yeah all the all the people have roles in yes, it it's everyone's kind of brutal, in it and it yeah. brings everyone together it, it ends what is the slogan it has this great nonsensical slogan it's like a paper company for a paperless world it's or something a, it's like a, that yeah it's exactly i think that's exactly what it is yeah it's a paper company for a paperless world it sounds world. beautiful but you're like wait a second Just, that's not a good company to yeah, have at all. one of my favorite jokes we ever did on the show was there's a great episode where ryan the temp um, invites Michael to speak at his business class. And Michael, again, puffs up with pride. He's thinking of himself as like a guest speaker and like, a, a, like, do, like an honorary, like he's getting a PhD or something, yeah. you know, like he's giving the commencement address at Stanford. And he comes there and what he realizes slowly is that Ryan's sort of project was to say that like, it's only a matter of time until Dunder Mifflin disappears because paper is disappearing and we don't do, use paper anymore. And that suddenly dawns on him that like that's, he's, it's not, he's not there to be celebrated. He's there as an <laughs> example of a person who's running an obsolete company. Right. And at the end of it, uh, there's a moment where he says, it's so, it's such a funny, subtle joke, but he says like, you're wrong. Everybody's wrong. Like, paper will always be here. Paper is here to stay. Write that down. And then it cuts to the crowd and they're all typing on <laughs> laptops. <laughs> so there, that was a huge thing for us on that show was like, he, it's a, it became part of the charm and part of what we did in terms of reorienting the way that the audience related to him was we pointed out that he's an underdog. Yeah. He's a guy who loves a company that has no future. And there's something kind of sweet about that. In a way then this, the, the shift to Parks and Rec which you co-created with mm -hmm. Greg Daniels, um, is you you have an equally eclectic, diverse mix of characters sharing that little bit of carpet mm -hmm. um, who are lovable and idiosyncratic in various different ways. But there is an actual mission inside the office of civil service right. um, that is itself kind of morally valued by the overall frame of the show. Right. Um, so it kind of takes up the earnestness to, to a new level while keeping all the great comedy and great characters. Um, how did that idea come about? Well, um, a couple key things that went into it were we had invented this uh, private sector company in order to do satire about capitalism and the private sector and business culture and everything else. And so that it was sort of a logical leap to say like, well, if we invent a whole town, hmm. we can do it about the public sector, right? We can, we can have an entire community with 
media figures and teachers and government workers and businesses and whatever we want and do for the public sector what we did for the private sector with the office. The other thing that was going on was it was 2007 and eight when we were developing that show and the economy had completely collapsed and um, the, you know, the auto industry, among others, had been bailed out by the government. And it became very clear that one way or another, the government was going to be playing a much more active role in American life than it had in a very long time. And so it seemed like a natural thing to say, like, look, this is a comedy show. We're not doing a searing uh, you know, political investigation of the role of government in people's lives, but people now are aware of their governments a lot more than maybe they used to be. And we might need, we might have an opportunity here to show like, what's the good version of this? What mm-hmm. is the, what's the version of a government, the boots on the ground, local government that actually helps people and has a mission to make people's lives better. So that was the origin story of it. And then, you know, over time, like The Office, it changes and shifts and you get romances and you get friendships and you get, you know, you get a sort of broader scope. But it began from that point of like, let's just watch someone in the government relate to the people that she works for. It felt to me as a viewer that the vision of it is there, episode one, season one. Interesting. I, I don't, I mean, I, I, you can see that change that you discussed um, with The Office, but I, I don't know. I just felt like you you knew exactly the world you were going to inhabit from early on in I that think, show. I think we knew the, I think we knew what we wanted to do. I don't think we were very good at it for a couple episodes, well, maybe, which is fairly yeah. typical, but you know, we, um, we did, they do testing. They do like audience testing for pilots very often. The feedback that we got was that Leslie Nope was coming off as ditzy. And that was so horrifying to me because that was the exact opposite of how we wanted her to be portrayed. Like we wanted her to be incredibly smart and driven and an idea machine. Um, But someone who just didn't have the, the like sort of acumen to play the game of politics. And so she was constantly like running around and bumping into walls. And the fact that she was coming off ditzy was really distressing. So we did our, again, we did what Greg did with the office. We did like a sort of forensic analysis and we realized that we were still in some weird way in the first like two or three episodes, we were still, we were taking the Michael Scott principles and applying them to Leslie Nope. And that was a mistake because she wasn't Michael Scott. That yeah. is not who she is. And and the interesting thing was that the 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 way that we we didn't change, honestly, we changed a little bit of how we wrote her. Amy, I think, naturally changed a little bit of how she played her. But really what we did was we changed the way that other people talked about her. Because mm-hmm. like Michael Scott was super annoying, right? And he made annoying jokes and he thought he was hilarious. And other people would then either talk about him and how annoying he was, or would just glance at the camera with a look on their face of like, can you believe I have to work for this guy? And we were doing some of that with Parks and Rec too. And so really all we did is we changed the way people reacted to her from like rolling their eyes and being annoyed to being like, man, she's really good at this. (laughs) Because that was the intention always was that she was really smart and had a million ideas. And so just by changing the characters around her and the way that they related to her, we were able to kind of shift the audience's perspective of what kind of character we were trying to present. 
One just side note that I'm curious what your kind of TV history um, theory about this is. One thing you you know you use a ton in the office that you just alluded to, and I think you do in Parks and Rec, but you don't do in The Good Place, um, is that mockumentary reaction shot mm-hmm. of a character just looking at the camera being like, what the hell? Yeah. Um, which is just bizarrely entertaining. Like mm-hmm. you can take a kind of funny line and turn it into a really funny line yep. just seeing someone... Um, where do you think that came from? Is it is it in the mockumentary shot in general? That shot that reaction shot is that in Spinal Tap? Spinal is Tap in- is was was our like was our touchstone for a yeah. lot of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think the the British guys perfected it. Yeah. What's fascinating about it though is that the reason that it works really well throughout two hundred episodes of a show, anything you do two hundred times is going to get boring or has the risk of getting boring. Right. But the reason that I think it, it worked really well in the office is that we were really specific about the different kinds of ways that people looked at the camera. And this is getting really granular. I apologize. (laughs) I love this stuff. But, um, (laughs) it was, it wasn't, and this, a lot of this, a lot of the credit here goes to the actors too, but they didn't all just look at the camera and roll their eyes. Jim looked to the camera like it was his friend right? It was like, finally, there's a person here who, right. who sees what I have been living for the last however many years. Like, you're my friend and you see this too, right? Dwight would look at the camera like, I am awesome and you know I'm awesome and I want to make sure you know I'm awesome. Michael would look at the camera very frequently like, oh no, right? Because he would say <laughs> something stupid or racist or whatever and would go, oh right, there's a camera here. And then he would have to spin <laughs> for the camera. So they all had these different relationships. So that little device has now is now very common at the time was brand new for American TV at least. It it adds this whole layer of specificity of character. And and because it's the camera, it's also the audience. Like the audience feels what the camera people would feel. So it's, it, it really, it worked so well for, um, for the office and it worked really well in places for Parks and Rec. We did it a lot less on Parks and Rec because yeah. for partly because once we figured out the difference between Leslie and Open and Michael Scott, we realized like, oh, Leslie is an v- incredibly honest and sincere person. She wears her heart on her sleeve. There's no reason for her. We imagined it early on as like, oh, she's going to be doing the same thing Michael Scott does, which is like saying something and then catching herself and spinning like a politician. But we eventually realized like she doesn't spin anything. She just says what she feels all the time. And so Amy kind of naturally stopped looking at the camera. If you look at those later seasons, there's very few glances to the camera from her. Um, so it's, it's like this living, breathing aspect of the show that changes and evolves over time as the characters do. It's really cool. Thank you for diving into that. I love <laughs> I, I mean, all of these little kind of formal conventions that people, I think, experience and it really shapes the show. But I think in some cases, they're not even aware of what's happening. Yeah. They're really, I think building blocks are and really I th- interesting. I think it's good that they're not aware. I don't yeah. think it should be. I think it should be acting. It should be functioning on a subconscious level. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's... If it's too showy and too overused or whatever, it's not going to work. It has to be a, it has to be a sort of subtle aspect yeah. of a show for it to work. I want to transition through this question about the workplace and the future of, of work. So, sure. just recently, you wrote an essay for the Guardian mm-hmm. that was. Really looking at at the future of the workspace coming out of the COVID pandemic, and 
you, you made a kind of wonderful defense of getting back to the office on some yeah. level. I, I'll just read here. You, you have this great line where you say, but, but something will be lost if we stop working while surrounded by others. There will be one last place on earth where we have to negotiate with people we didn't choose to negotiate with. So where do you, th- do you think we are inevitably, is this a cause that we need to fight for to get back into these shared physical spaces or are we inevitably going to be pulled back to it because we do want to have that physical interaction with people? No. No, I think we have to fight for it. And I don't think that it is a pure cause because flexibility of physical location is a real godsend for a lot of people, mm. people who um, have child care issues or family care issues, people who have long commutes, people who are on budgets and are saving money. And I think that for some people, it is unquestionably better and they should be allowed to continue to <laughs> do it. But I do think that there's a, there's a, there's a flip side of this and I think it's more uh, cynical. And I think that side of it is that companies have saved an enormous right. amount of money by not having to provide basic infrastructure and services and food and stuff for people. And I don't want us not to go back to the office for that reason. I think that's the danger. And you see it in my business. Comedy writing is a collaborative enterprise. It requires a group of people to be in the same place at the same time, the energy to be trapped by walls and to have the the fertile idea generation that comes out of those sessions is irreplaceable. We've been doing it on Zoom for two years. It stinks. Nobody likes it. No one can look at a computer for more than a certain number of hours. There's the internet goes down, people get kicked out of the Zoom. Like it just it stinks. It's so much worse. And obviously that's a very specific example. But I think that there are a lot of businesses that are not purely what you would think of as creative endeavors that benefit greatly from just having people in the same place and being able to see each other. I think people's moods improve. No one is happy or very, no, I shouldn't say no one. The majority of people, I think, are not meant to stay in their houses alone for the entire day, never actually being in the same place as someone else. So much of the of productivity and of of just creativity and everything else comes from milling around and getting a snack and talking about what you watched on TV last night or talking about the game that you saw or whatever. We're, we're social animals and we're supposed to be around other people. And I don't want this to become a situation where the combination of corporate greed and convenience means that we're like, all right, everyone's just stay in your houses all day. I think that's really bad. That further atomizes the human race in a way that I think is very dangerous. One of the other phrases that you use in the in the essay, which I thought was really fascinating, is you describe workplaces as ethical laboratories. Yeah, explain that, and then we can take that into thinking about the good place and and your book. In order to um, understand other people, you have to be around them, and they have to annoy you. That's just the deal. You have to get annoyed by people in order to figure out how to work out problems that you have, right? Mm. And the office was nothing but a series of episodes about the small ways that people annoy each other <laughs> and then and the navigation around those annoyances, right? And they are where I'm talking at the level of like there's an office episode where someone um put something in the microwave and it exploded and they didn't clean the microwave. And Pam goes on this mission to find out who did this. And, um, that was like, that's a 
perfect example of like, this isn't an, like the, the first stop in your sort of experience of this is I, the people I work with are so annoying. I hate them. They're mm. so inconsiderate. Why don't they just clean up after themselves? Like what is wrong with these people? The second step is like, how do we solve this problem? Like, what do we do? What's the right move? And she does a bunch of things in that episode that are a little bit passive aggressive. She leaves a note, an anonymous note, and then everyone gets angry at whoever left the anonymous note. And then she has to kind of defend whoever left the anonymous <laughs> note, you know? And so she's, and so she learns a lesson, right? Which is yeah. like, okay, passive aggression isn't the right way to handle a problem like this. So these little tiny things, these little moments of irritation or of like negotiation without those, you're just in your own home by yourself, getting angry at things, maybe tweeting about them, but generally not solving problems. Like you have to, and, and the solving of problems like gives you a little bit of a structure or a foundation for like the next time I'm in this situation like this, I now have more information and I will do a better job. And I really do worry that we have, it's become possible now to program your life the way that you program like a Spotify playlist. You can only watch the news that you want to watch. You can mm -hmm. only hear the voices of the people that you know you already like. There are sophisticated algorithms that take what they know about you and feed back to you only things that they know that you will approve of. That's a really dangerous world. And I, and I, I, it's just, it becomes like, you know, reinforcing your the beliefs you already have instead of having to get into a situation where you meet other kinds of people or hear about other kinds of things and get to experience them. Another thing that is central to um, The Good Place in particular, but it shows up in a lot of your shows, and, and it's something I, I feel like is also an underappreciated part of, of great narratives, is to, to me, great stories are, are not about action or mysteries, but the, the, the narratives I find myself most moved by are ones that involve decisions, like complex decisions. Hmm. When you have a character that reaches some kind of threshold where there's a bunch of different variables and it's a complicated, you know, not clear what the right path is mm -hmm. and watching them kind of decide. And this is like, you know, from middle March to, to Breaking Bad. I mean, Breaking Bad is just like one series of artful but terrible decision, right. <laughs> you know, stacked up over time. And what, I guess my first question is, is that something you think about when you're writing? Do you think about kind of decision points in terms of the storytelling or is that just something that kind of comes up? No, I, I, of course you do. I mean, that's the basis of all plots is just like who, may, who, who's deciding, what are they deciding? Right. Yeah. But the, I think the thing I would, I would maybe deepen that by one level by saying, there is an incredible um, level of acumen involved in the way that Breaking Bad was plotted, yeah. right? It's an, it's an amazing step-by-step-by-step -step investigation of a person who breaks bad, right? And the, the artistry that they put into that show in terms of the way that it was plotted out is incredible. Those decisions tell a psychological story of a person who was always a monster, always had a monster inside him and was looking for an excuse for it to come out. <laughs> That's interesting. And he, his justification of his actions gets harder and harder and harder as you're, he's, you know, he's doing it for his family, right? It's like, he's dying. He needs to make sure his family is taken care of. He's a chemist. I'll make crystal meth and I'll sell it. And for so long, he's going like, I just need to provide for my family. I need this much money. And then my family will be secure. My son will be okay. 
And after like a year of that, you're like, hey, man, <laughs> you can't justify this anymore. This is insane. It's making me really hard for me to root for you. And then you realize, oh, he's a monster. Yeah. I'm not supposed to root for him. Yeah. He's a terrible, terrible, terrible person with this awful dark beast inside him. So, and then the next leap as a viewer is, oh, the point of this show is it's a cautionary tale. It's we all have monsters inside us. And if we get too good at justifying the bad things that we do, the monster will come out and, and will ruin people's lives. We won't probably murder as many people as Walter White did, but right. it'll be bad. And so those decisions, the plot level decisions require a tremendous amount of artistry, but they don't really become affecting or matter unless there's like an interesting emotional or psychological story that's sort of underpinning it. In your book, How to Be Perfect, um, you tell a story about an event that happened, a, a one mile per hour car <laughs> accident. And I wanted to bring it up because it, it sounded like from your description of it that, it, that that was one of the key events that led both to you thinking about ethics and moral philosophy, which led to the, the good place mm -hmm. and to, to, to writing the book, um, how to be perfect. So <laughs> tell us the story. So 2005, my wife is in a small, very, very slow fender bender. A police officer doesn't see any damage. They exchange numbers. We get a claim for $836. It's happening during Hurricane Katrina. My wife and I had just been there on a trip and we're very in love with New Orleans at that moment. And it, we were uncharacteristically affected by that event, even though we don't have a personal attachment to the city or anything. So I go and look at the guy's car. And if I, if I strain very, very hard, I can just barely see this little crease, just very faint. And I got very angry, which is not uh, typical for me. And I said, you know, this is absurd. And this is why car insurance is so expensive. And I made him an offer, which was, how about I donate $836 to the Red Cross in your name and you let this crease stay on your bumper? He said he would think it over. I told all my friends about what happened and they started pledging more and more money if the guy would agree not to fix his car. And soon it was $5,000 and then $8,000. And eventually within like, a day and a half, it was $25,000 would be donated to the Red Cross if the guy would retract the damage claim. I started a blog. I got media requests. It, it was the first thing I know of that went viral in uh -huh. that way. And I was like, this is great. And I literally, in my head, I was going to save New Orleans by myself. <laughs> like I was, I was going to be a hero. And then at the exact same moment, my wife and I got sick to our stomachs and we didn't understand why. We were just like, this is bad. This is wrong. We don't know why. And I realized that something I was doing was unethical, but I didn't know what it was. And so I started reading ethics. I started yeah. reading philosophy. And like, and when I say reading, I mean like it's three in the morning and I can't sleep and I'm like flipping through things, the internet. I called a bunch of philosophy professors and was like, can I run this problem by you? Can you help me? Eventually they gave me a bunch of different things to read and a bunch of different opinions. I eventually made a, the conclusion that what I was doing was indefensible. I called the guy. He didn't know any of this was happening. But that was the other <laughs> thing. He had no idea this was happening. He was just like waiting for my check to show up. So I eventually, I called him. I copped to the whole thing. I sent him a check and I was like, I'm really sorry. And he was very kind and forgiving. And um, I then went to the blog and I told everyone what had happened and said, please donate this money anyway. I know that you pledged it. You pledged this money if this guy wouldn't fix his car. But I now have come to the conclusion that he should fix his car and I should pay for it. Yeah. And so please donate it anyway. And 
25,000 or $27,000 or something got donated to the Red Cross. So it was a, it was this weird tangled knotted event in my life that made me think the, the main feeling I had was, you know, I've read all this philosophy in the last three days and it's all fascinating. And if I had read it a week ago, none of this would have happened mm. because I would have known that what I was doing was not ethical, that it was not morally okay for me to shame him for something that just happened to him that has nothing to do, the Hurricane Katrina has zero to do with his with this car accident. And I just had this overwhelming feeling like if I had been better prepared and I would have not made this mistake and caused myself a lot of agony and caused him agony and whipped up this whole firestorm. And I just started thinking of ethical theories as like the as the preparation that we all should do in order to just live life on earth. And I kind of think it's like a responsibility that we all have to understand you're not, you're still going to get everything wrong. Like everyone's still going to blow it all the time. Like it's not like it guarantees success, but I think you have a much better chance of, of avoiding problems and of getting things right. If you at least have a basic nuts and bolts understanding of the theories and how they work. I, it, it's so um, impressive that you were able to take this interest in, ethics and moral philosophy and in a sense turn it into two different forms one a, a sitcom mm -hmm. as we talked about something that really hasn't been done before in an explicit way and and then a, a really entertaining book i've probably read you know six thousand descriptions of like the trolley problem <laughs> and yours is by far the most entertaining <laughs> i'm glad to hear and, it and, but also in insightful i mean i love this idea of like why are so many people still on the tracks yeah like what is going all on? philosophy <laughs> thought experiments are absurd it's always like a group of people are standing motionless on the top of a volcano and like why why what are they doing <laughs> but um well, i think one of the things that it, it, it comes out a lot in um in the good place and in the book is the utilitarian tradition mm -hmm. and Bentham in particular, who was a very wacky guy, as you, as you point out, yeah. but for, for those of folks out there listening, don't know about it. Bentham's idea is this, this core concept that, you, you know, your choices in life should be about maximizing pleasure in the world and minimizing pain in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and even has kind of like units of measure for both, which yeah. is pretty funny. And so in some ways, the the leaderboard in A Good Place Very is, utilitarian. is applied mm -hmm. Bentham, right? Um, and I think it's one of those theories when you first hear it, you're like, well, that sounds good. Like, yeah. that's a good model. I can understand that mm -hmm. intuitively, but it ends up being thornier. Can you say something about that? Yeah, like it, he called it the greatest happiness principle. And he oh. basically said... You should create more hedons, which are units of of happiness or pleasure than dolors, which are units yeah. of pain or suffering. And it is the theory of all of the theories. It's the one that most often people go like, oh, cool. I get this. Yeah. I get this. I can do this one. Let's, I'm going to utilitarian now because yeah. I understand this. The problem is there are a lot of very troubling conclusions that you come to when you only think about. A, a, a key, key to the theory is that everyone's happiness and sadness is the same, that there's no class system. He was a socialist and there was a real desire to level the playing field and say, like, it doesn't matter whether you're in the House of Lords or you are a lowly lamplighter. You are the same. Your happiness is the same. Your sadness is the same. Great. Love it. The problem is, is you think like, OK, well, the first thing, the first problem is that means that 51 percent of any population could um, like 
just basically ruled 49% of the population in a fascistic way, because in theory, 51% of the people being happy and being the in crowd and 49% being unhappy, well, more, more happiness than pain. So you're okay. So, uh, you know, another problem would be like in the trolley, in a version of the trolley problem, you might say, okay, I'm going to, there are five people who need organ transplants. I'm going to murder this healthy person, harvest his organs and give them to the five people who need them. I've created more happiness. Five people stay alive. Only one person dies. So that's an allowable event. So John Stuart Mill, who is his disciple, did a lot of work to correct some of those problems by, he was focused on the the tyranny question. He basically said, freedom is the most important thing. And so any system that ha- involves tyranny is not allowable because the the 51% would be made sad by the fact that they would realize that someday they might be in the minority. And so they're sad. You have to add their fear of the future to the calculation. When you are calculating the pain and happiness that you've created, you can't just think about the action or the person who is directly related. You have to think about, okay, everyone in society now knows that this happened and it could someday happen to them. So in my case, a perfect example, the utilitarians gave me a way to think, oh, maybe this is okay, this fender bender thing, because yeah, this I'm being annoying to this guy. I'm being moralistic and high and mighty, but all this money's going to hurricane victims. So a strict utilitarian might say like, hey, good, good work. That's fine. But how annoying would it be to live in a world where you know that every time you have this, some minor dispute with someone, that person could just open the newspaper, find an unfolding disaster, and then say, how dare you care about this when the polar ice caps are melting or whatever. And so everyone would be a little sad. And so the total amount of sadness in the world is actually much higher than you might have thought at first. So it's, it's, it's it's deceptively simple um, because you think like, oh, I get it. More pain is bad. More happiness is good. But then when you start to like investigate how that how you calculate that and what that really means, it gets it just as fuzzy and confusing as any other theory. Someday we will have moral health apps on our phone that will just be calculating these, <laughs> these things. Well, you, know what's, you know what's really wild? Um, there's a guy named Joshua Green, who's a professor at Harvard, who was a consultant for a while in The Good Place. And he did this really interesting piece about driverless cars, yeah. right? So, and the basically the trolley problem is applied to driverless cars. And it's this problem where like, imagine a future in which these cars and machines can speak to each other essentially at the speed of light. So two cars are driving in opposite directions on an icy road and they both spin out and they're, they're going to crash. And the cars in the blink of an eye have the following conversation like, okay, we're going to crash and there will likely be some fatalities here. Who's in your car? And the other car says, I've got a 61 year old woman with type two diabetes and a 14 year old grandson who uh, is a straight A student, who do you have? And he's like, well, I've got a 39 year old woman who's pregnant and a 19 year old uh, boy who just got out of prison for armed robbery. And they go like, okay, well, let's calculate the future utility of these lives. And that decision leads to how they arrange their wheels and collide with each other so as to maximally save the lives they've deemed more valuable than the other lives. That's very dicey, right? right. Like that's not, right. that's a scary world. And what's even scarier, as he pointed out, is how did they make these calculations? Well, 
we programmed them yeah. to do that. Like that's the only way that they can do it as of now. There's no full AI, right? So the, when you start getting into these calculations of like more happiness than sadness, it seems like, oh, that's easy. And then you play out these scenarios and suddenly it becomes terrifying to think about how, how those decisions would get made. Um, one, I think really powerful thing that you do in, in the book, kind of introducing the ideas of the post-war moral philosopher, John Rawls, um, is you have this a sequential description of all the chain of events where you were lucky mm -hmm. that led to your success in your career. And, it, uh, you know, we don't have to go, go through, people can read the book and, and read it all. But I just, to me, it seems like a really wonderful exercise for people to do. Um, I like agree. Everyone should write something like this. Yes, um, I fully agree. That came, That's a thing I've been thinking about. It was actually quite literally my wedding toast to my wife was a mm. similar thing of like, I, I, I made a list of all of the things that had to break exactly the right way for the two of us to meet and get married. Mm. And so I've been thinking about it for a very long time. It's kind of all I think about. And there's a philosopher or a social scientist really named Robert Frank who teaches at Cornell and his, he has a book on luck and the myth of meritocracy that really affected me and put a fine point on a lot of things I've been thinking about. And basically what he says is that there is no, it doesn't diminish your accomplishments to recognize that a lot of what happened in your life is due to luck, including stuff that happened before you were born, like mm -hmm. how your parents met and and what kind of people they are and whether they're smart or not, or whether they are successful or not. Like there's so much stuff you, you are, you come into the earth, the product of a certain amount of luck, good or bad. And it only continues from there. And so I think all the time about, in addition to working hard and thinking that I'm pretty good at what I do, that the my career and my life is the result of like endless amounts of fortunate events that broke the right way at the right time. And I don't think that it takes anything away from anything that I've done to just recognize that. And I think what it gives you is the recognition that there are people who are just as talented and smart and capable who aren't as lucky, who didn't have the things mm. go exactly the right way at the exact moments that you did. And that leads to having empathy for people whose lives didn't turn out that well. Well, Michael Schuer, I I feel like I'm a much better person from this conversation. It'll I'm be twenty dollars. Sure it will wear off. <laughs> <laughs> Just fascinating to talk to you, and thanks so much for coming on the TED interview. My pleasure. Thank you. The TED interview is part of the TED Audio Collective. This episode was produced by Ali Graham. The show is brought to you by TED and Transmitter Media. Sammy Case is our story editor. Fact-checking by Miri Yesutasen. Farah DeGrange is our project manager. Constanza Gallardo is our managing producer. And Greta Cohn is our executive producer. Special thanks to Michelle Quint and Anna Phelan. For more information on my other projects, including my latest book, Extra Life, you can follow me on Twitter at Stephen B. Johnson or sign up for my Substack newsletter, Adjacent Possible. <laughs>